How are we doing, guys? You good? Yeah, yeah. All still awake? Excellent. So we're starting a new ooh, starting a new series this week, a series of four weeks, which we've called Disciple. Now, a quick, quick Bible knowledge quiz for you. Who can... Oh, it's a really tricky one, this term. Oh, we get... No, 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 don't spoil the fun. We're getting to that later. That one's coming. First of all... What was that last instruction that Jesus gave us before he ascended to heaven, known as the Great Commission? What did he say? Go and make... So, he didn't say, go and make believers. He didn't say, go and make Christians. He said, go and make disciples. And so what we're wanting to explore in this series is, what does it mean to be a disciple, not just someone who believes, but to be a disciple. So that's what we're looking at over the next four weeks. Now, as Jan so rightly guessed, it seems appropriate at the start of this series to remind ourselves who the disciples were. So hopefully we all know how many disciples there were who bore that label. How many are there? Twelve. I've got paper and I've got a Sharpie. Who were they? Anybody? Peter. You get to come and hold it up at the front then, Bumi. You're so glad. Otherwise, we won't keep track of who we've had. So we've got Peter, probably one of the best known ones there. Um, he's, slow down. Hold that thought. So we've got Peter. He was one of two brothers. Who was his brother? Andrew, yeah. Who's going to come and hold Andrew? Who's going to come and hold Andrew for us? <laughs> Andrew, you can come and be Andrew. Okay, so Simon, Peter, and Andrew. So Peter was the better known one. He was the more forward of the two, shall we say. Peter was the impulsive one. He's the first one who actually says, I think Jesus is the Messiah. Peter's the one who, when he sees Jesus walking on water towards him, the boat says, oh, I want to have a go at that, and jumps out of the boat to have a turn. Andrew, we don't hear so much about, I'm afraid. Sorry, you don't get mentioned quite so often. But what we do know about you, Andrew, was actually you were a follower of John the Baptist before you were a follower of Jesus. So there we go. Okay, so that's two of them. Now, Paul jumped right in there with his favorite disciple, (laughs) which was Judas, I believe. And we're just going with you. So, so do tell us, Paul. What what made you come and hold it? If you say it, you've got to hold it. What what made you feel particularly drawn to Judas as a disciple? It's comic effect, really. Comic effect. Fair enough. In case we haven't already, so Judas was the one who actually betrayed Jesus to the Romans. So he did get kicked off later. Sorry. Okay. One, two, three. We've got a few to go, people. Who else was there? Oh, they're all coming right. Hang on. Philip. Okay. Probably a fisherman. And he's the one who, having been called by Jesus, he brings along his mate. Who was Philip's mate who he brought along? Nathaniel. (laughs) 
Nathaniel, are you going to come and hold that one for me, Taya, then? <coughs> Just a point to note where I always used to get confused. The book of Philippians is nothing to do with the name Philip. I used to think it was Philippians as in the followers of Philip, and it's not. No, no, no. It's the people in Philippi, just in case anyone else makes that mistake. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Any more? Who else have we got? Ooh, Bartholomew. No, hang on. Oh, hang on. Isn't, isn't he the one that gets swapped in later? I haven't got him on my list. You become Bartholomew later. You're replaced. Thomas. Thomas, poor bloke. To be fair, I, I, I can relate to Thomas. Come and hold Thomas for me then, yeah? Thomas, in fairness, you know, if, if everyone comes to you saying, hey, Jesus is alive, he's risen from the dead, I'd want to see the evidence too, frankly. So I'm, I'm, I'm with Thomas on that one. Any more? James? You can't say them if you're up here already. It's cheating. So we've got James... Who had it? Who's going to come and hold James? Oh, I didn't spot you there, James. There we go, James. And James has a brother, John. Anyone want to come and hold John? We haven't got any Johns in the room today, have we? Who's going to be John? Oh, you're all so willing. Come on, Lolu, come and be John. So James and John, brothers, they're also fish, so, so like Peter and Andrew, they're fishermen, but they're slightly wealthier fishermen. Apparently, they have servants on their boats, just in case you didn't know. Um, yep. And John actually is quite well known as being, he was perhaps Jesus' closest friend out of all the disciples. Sorry guys, he's the favourite. <laughs> right, how many have we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There's another Judas, but he gets called um, Jude or, hang on, I've got to spell it right, Thaddeus, Thaddeus, that's, that's what I've got him down as. He also has a brother as well, who was Thaddeus' brother? I don't think we've got him up yet, have we? No, no, because we've got two of these, I think. There's, there's another James. Yes, James, because we've got James. So you're James, son of Zebedee from the Magic Roundabout. Okay. <laughs> then we've got James, son of Alpheus, and Thaddeus, who's the other Jude, who are brothers. There you go. Just come and hang them there. So we've got one missing. Who's the poor, neglected one? Matthias. Or oh, Matthew. Matthew, yeah. You were just practicing your Greek or whatever it was there. Matthew, shall I be Matthew on the end? Or you can be Matthew. There you go, you can be Matthew. Matthew, who was the tax collector. So these are the 12 disciples. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Oh, we're missing one, we're missing one. Who have we missed? Hang on. Oh, we've got another Simon. We've missed a Simon. Simon the Zealot. Have we not got a Simon up yet? I thought no, we'd done something. 
Oh, Simon, Peter, Simon, and then the other Simon. Linda, come and hold him up there. There we go. So the 12 disciples. Try and look zealous about it. Good, good. I'm impressed. The 12 disciples. So did Jesus just have 12 disciples then? That was just the start. Because actually, there was quite a few more. Oh, hang on. First of all, I've completely lost my place. One moment. Ah, now I see where we are. There were more. Let's look first, though, at where some of these guys came from. We'll make them stand there whilst we do this bit, just so that they feel useful. So in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls some of his disciples. From verse 18, it says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And then if we jump to Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. And for each of these disciples, this is the case. Jesus calls them, they leave what they're doing. They leave their livelihood and they come to follow Jesus. But that's just those 12. And as we've said, there's more than 12. There was others who hung out with Jesus. Perhaps Mary and Martha are some examples that come to mind. We know they followed Jesus. They hung out with him a lot. Later on in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out how many followers on a little mission? 72. Or 70, depending on which Gospel you're reading. He sends out a lot more. And actually, wherever Jesus goes, there's a crowd following him. So yes, we know these 12 disciples, but actually, disciple doesn't just apply to these guys. It applies to a whole bunch of people who are following him. So thank you very much, disciples. You may go and sit down. Now feel free to take your names as a souvenir of your exciting time this morning. Now, at this point, we're going to pause and play a little game, because we're not having enough fun yet this morning. Oh, hang on, we've done that bit. Oh, no, wrong way. Right, we're going to play What's the Cost Of? Oh, no, 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 we're not. I'm completely losing the plot today. I do apologize. We did Who Were the Twelve? I've got a question for you first. Because we said there was those 12 disciples following Jesus. There was the 72 that were sent out. There was the crowd that were following him around. I'd like us to ask ourselves this morning, am I in the crowd or am I a disciple? Am I in the crowd or am I a disciple? So as we hold that question in our minds, we will now play a little game. 
we're going to play what's the cost of. Okay? Anyone good at estimating costs of things? Brilliant. Okay, here we go. So, <clears throat> first up, what's the cost of dining at Prezzo's in town? For my family, okay? So that's Chris and I and Kezia and Jaden who no longer qualify for the kids' menu. <laughs> Estimated cost, what do we reckon? Shout them out. 102, 85, 65, 65. Oh, you're doing it on Tesco's vouchers, are you? Sorry? Without vouchers, without Tesco vouchers. 85, okay, well, I looked it up, you'll be pleased to know. Okay, so, family meal out. Now, as you know, you have to have the breaded mozzarella for starters there, don't you? It's compulsory. So, that costs £6.20 each. Feel free to jot these down and add them up as we go along. Your mains average at about £11 each. For dessert, it's got to be the honeycomb smashed cheesecake, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, so that's £6.30. Drinks, we're cheap because actually Chris is driving and I don't drink. Now, we're not going water. So, so Chris is driving. He's the only one in the family who would drink, so he's not drinking. So we're all having Pepsi for £2.75 each. Okay? So for four people, that adds up to... 105. 105 pounds. And is that what you had off the menu? Oh, so you went a little bit cheaper then. Did you have starters? You did have starters. Ah, oh, good, good. Yeah, Tesco vouchers do pretzels, makes it very good in fairness. Okay, what's the cost of holidaying in Florida? For one person, well, we'll just, just one of us is going this time. Not including Disney. Huh? Oh, do you know, I don't know. The website didn't say... For one week. 1,300. No way. That's exactly it. (laughs) Have you been recently? So apparently, according to the internet, which obviously is the fount of all truth, um, so they reckon you need about £148 per person per day to cover food, transport, and hotel, plus your flights, having looked those up, British Airways return flight economy class is £290. So for one week, that would work out at as £1,300. Okay. Next one. What's the cost of... Should we move on? Let's move on. Let's move on from that one. Okay, moving on to slightly more spiritual matters. What's the cost of being a disciple? What's the cost of being a disciple? Let me read to you our passage that we're looking at today is from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33, which says this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, 
such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other one is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. What's the cost of being a disciple? Because actually, before we set about anything in life, we need to evaluate the cost. Like it says in the passage there, you don't jump into it before you've worked out, can I afford this? I don't go to Prezzo's with the family unless I know I've got whatever it was, £105 in the bank to pay for it. What's the cost of being a disciple? Consider the cost. And Jesus is quite clear that there is a cost, that there is a difference between just being in the crowd and being a disciple. It said in the passage, large crowds were travelling with him. But he said to that large crowd, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So as we start this journey of these next four weeks, thinking about what it means to be a disciple, let's start from the point of considering what's the cost involved here? Because there is a cost. So let's look in a bit more detail at what he actually says. And it starts off really uncomfortable, doesn't it? If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. The cost of being a disciple. Now, we need to make sure we understand this one correctly. Okay, that word hate is actually, in in the original language, it's a comparative word. Okay, so the way it's translated in the NIV probably isn't the most helpful, if I'm honest, because it's not saying you have to absolutely hate them, but it's a comparative of value less than Jesus. So placing more value on Jesus than you do on your parents, on your wife, presumably husband counts as well, although it doesn't say that there, actually. do we? We're off the hook, ladies. Great. Wife and children, brothers and sisters. Who do you love more? Jesus or your parents? Jesus or your husband or wife? Jesus or your children? That feels really uncomfortable, doesn't it? Really uncomfortable. When I read that, I'm reminded of a a story in the Old Testament, um, the story of Abraham, who you may know, he, Abraham and Sarah had wanted a child for years and years and years, but Sarah couldn't have children. And eventually, 
after a long, long time, when they were frankly past it, they were ancient, they eventually had this longed-for son, Isaac. And not so far down the road with Isaac, God tells Abraham to go up the mountain and sacrifice Isaac to him. Which would have been fairly common practice in the time. That was what they did to appease their gods back then. You sacrificed your children. Any children feeling glad we don't do that these days? Yeah? Okay. And you know, Abraham trusted God in that. And Abraham set off up the mountain with this precious, longed-for son that God had given him to sacrifice him to God. How does that make sense? But I always am encouraged by one particular bit of that story. As they're going up the mountain, Isaac says to his dad, Abraham, but hang on, where's the sacrifice? Because Abraham's told him, we're going to go and sacrifice to God up the mountain. And so off they trot. But Isaac goes, hang on, hang on, hang on. Usually when we go to sacrifice, we take a lamb or a goat. Where's the lamb or goat? Where's the sacrifice, dad? And Abraham says to him, God will provide. God will provide. Now, I don't know what Abraham had in mind when he said that. And this may be me completely misinterpreted, but I like to think that somehow Abraham knew God is good. God promised me this son. Somehow here God has got a plan. I don't know what it is. But I trust that God is going to work this out for good. That somehow, whether he thought that Isaac would come back to life again after he'd been sacrificed or something, I I don't know. But Abraham trusted that God had a plan and that God's plan would be good. And so when we think about loving Jesus more than we love our spouse or our parents or our children. It's about knowing that God loves them more and better than we ever could. He loves them more than we do. So we can trust to love him the most because we know that he loves them more than we do. I can put him in my life before all of those other people, because I know that his plan for me and his plan for them is perfect, and he will care for them better than I ever could. To try and put that into some kind of context we can think about, I've I've had to sort of think that one through recently, when we've reached the stage now with teenage daughter, she's going to hate me now for sharing stuff. So there was a point, we're, we're thinking about university, okay, Another year and a half, and Kezia is going to be abandoning us to go to university. There was a brief period, as she was considering the options, when she toyed with the idea of going to university in Australia. Okay, Australia. Now, I don't know if you've followed the news recently. They have kind of lots of, like, massive fires going on there and stuff. You know, my baby girl, other side of the world near those fires. And, like, they have poisonous spiders there and snakes, and, and stuff, and, and I'm like, you know, I don't want my little girl over there in Australia, because like, cause like if, if there's a fire, or a poisonous snake, or a spider, I can't run over there and rescue her. It's too far away. 
So I did not like that plan. Now, thankfully, actually, I think you've moved on from that one, haven't you, Kezia? Oh, she's, oh, she's not sure. She's shrugging. Her. Oh, dear. pray for me, people. Pray for me. It's raining now. It's okay. It's okay. But you're coming back as soon as the fires start, okay? So for me, if I love Kezia first, it's like, actually, I don't want her to go to a place like that where I'm worried about her safety. You know, I can't be there to look after her. But actually, putting my love for God first, saying, Jesus, I love you more than I love Kezia, because I trust that God's plan for her is better than my plan. And actually, if God is saying to her that she should go to Australia, he's going to look after her there. He's going to have a better plan for her there than if I keep her as mine, my child. I will look after her, and she will go where I want her to go so I can look after her. God's got a better plan. I can trust him to know what's best for her better than I can trust myself. And so I think that's something of what it means, actually, when we face that challenge of do we love Jesus more than these other people? It's not a message of having to not care about our children or our husband or wife. It's about saying, actually, Jesus, I trust you to care for them better than I do. I trust you to have a better plan for them than I do. That's what it's about. But then it also says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate even their own life, I hate my life. Hmm. So again, remember this word hate is a comparative. And this is about comparing our life as a disciple of Jesus with our life lived our own way. Now, for some people, this becomes quite literal. There's some people for whom choosing to be a disciple of Jesus does mean literally sacrificing their life. There are people around the world today who actually die as martyrs because they've chosen to follow Jesus. I'm guessing that's probably not the case for most of us in this room, though. But there are sacrifices that we make. So do we value our own life more than our life as a disciple following Jesus. And actually, when we think about it, when we compare the two, perhaps that word hate doesn't necessarily feel quite so strong anymore. When we look at our life as a follower of Jesus and compare it with what our life looks like when we're not following Jesus. Let let me get a bit honest about me for a minute here, okay? You're not going to like me by the end of this, people. All right, I'm I'm going to tell you awful things about me. So, looking back to what I look like if I live my life rather than the life following Jesus. So, if we go way back to when I was still at school, for me then, my life was about being the cleverest. Okay? That's what it was about. I wanted to get the best marks in the exams. And what that looked like for my life was... There was this one time, we we were doing one of these maths challenge things. There was a team of four of us who'd go and do like this maths quiz for the school, okay, and try to win it for the school. And I wanted to look the cleverest. I wanted to look really good. And so when when I was, I don't know, I must have been sort of 13, 14-ish, 
with this group of three others on the team, as we were chatting about the upcoming competition, I decided I would show them how clever I was because I wanted to show off a bit and share what I hoped there would be a tiebreaker question on where I could save the day and I would win the competition for the team. And I shared this with them. That went down really well. Because, you see, my, my little proud thing back then, okay, and I can still do this, I can recite pi to many digits after the decimal point. You know the number pi for working out the area of a circle? Yeah, yeah. It, it was a bit of a thing between my brother and I. We, we grew up in Norfolk, okay? There wasn't much to do. That's just irrational. And, and it's just irrational. Ha, ha, ha. And so we would compete at memorizing the digits of pi. And so I said to these other guys on my team, well, I really hope there's a tiebreaker question to recite pi to the most number of digits because I can do it to this many digits. And they all kind of looked at me. It did not impress them. Really didn't impress them. And I look at that, at that life and that person, I think, I hate that. I genuinely hate that. I don't like that I was like that. That I would, you know, try and brag trivial things like that to try and make them think, oh, look, I'm clever. I can save the day with my amazing knowledge. I genuinely do hate that. I don't like it. Later on in my life, I, I kind of moved on from saving the world by reciting pi. And my new identity of what, you know, my life, what my life was about was being super organized and efficient. Okay, I, I was saved by this point. I was serving in church. This is the old church I was in before I came here. And I managed one of the kids' work rotors. And I was brilliant at organizing the rotor. The rotor was out on time. There were no gaps in it. Everything was amazingly organized. <clears throat> and then one week, just towards the end of one of our sessions, I'd, a couple of weeks ago, sent out the new rotor for the next term ahead of time because I was that efficient, okay? I was going to save the world with my efficiency. And this young couple who served on our kids' work team came up to me and they said, hey, Claire, we've got some news. We're moving back to South Africa in a month. And do you know what I responded with? Being the pastoral sort I am, because as, you, as you, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be pastoral. I have a great pastoral heart. I said to them, but I've already done the rotor. <laughs> And later on, after I'd got home, I had to think, hmm, <laughs> that perhaps wasn't the appropriate response. But my life, when it's mine, living my way with my goals, looks like that. And I don't like it. I don't like that person. I do hate that life. Perhaps you can think of comparisons you could make as you think of your life. You're probably all much better than me, so don't have, you know, really you know, horrid stuff like that. But you, you look back and think, actually, if I compare me living my way with me living God's way, yeah, I do hate my life based on my goals and my dreams. Because compared with the life that Jesus offers, it is horrid. I do hate it. <clears throat> so we value that life of a disciple of following Jesus more 
than the things that we have in ourselves, our families, our children, our own ways. Which means we have to make a sacrifice. There is a cost to being a disciple. And the cross is the place of sacrifice. It says in that passage, whoever does not carry their cross cannot be my disciple. So the cross, immediately we're thinking of that sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Because we can't live a good life, because we can never get it right, Jesus went to the cross and sacrificed his life so that we can live as his disciples, so that we can have a new life in him, so that we are free to follow him. But this says whoever does not carry their cross, not Jesus' cross, our own cross. What does it mean to carry our own cross? If it's my cross, then it's me making the sacrifice. The sacrifices I have to make in order to follow Jesus. And I need to carry it with me. I think it says in the passage, you need to pick it up and carry it with you every day. I need to carry it with me. We, we like to think of, okay, we come to church on a Sunday and there's the cross and we leave our burdens at the cross and off we walk free for the rest of the week. But we need to bring our cross with us because, I don't know about you, but I need to make choose to make those sacrifices every day, minute by minute. It's not a once sacrifice. It's day by day in the choices that we make. Am I choosing my way, my thing, or am I sacrificing that to follow Jesus? I need my cross with me so I can keep on going as a disciple, sacrificing my way in order to follow him. I wonder if you're familiar with the poem. I, I, I was reluctant to do this one because it, it's a bit old-fashioned and it's become a bit clichéd. So if that bothers you, I apologise, but I think it's significant. There's a poem that was written a long time ago that's become very well-known called A Cross in My Pocket. Do you know that one? You come across it? It often... It's become a bit of a thing to have on a little card and you get your little cross in your pocket with your card. It, it was written by Mrs. Vera May, no, Verna May Thomas, which gives you an idea of how old it is. And the poem says this. I carry a cross in my pocket, a simple reminder to me of the fact that I am a Christian, no matter where I may be. This little cross is not magic, nor is it a good luck charm. It isn't meant to protect me from every physical harm. It's not for identification, for all the world to see. It's simply an understanding between my saviour and me. When I put my hand in my pocket to bring out a coin or a key, the cross is there to remind me of the price he paid for me. It reminds me too to be thankful for my blessings day by day and to strive to serve him better in all that I do and say. It's also a daily reminder of the peace and comfort I share with all who know my master and give themselves to his care. So I carry a cross in my pocket, 
reminding no one but me that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life, if only I'll let him be. Now, that's talking about the cross of Jesus, but I think we can take that too to carrying our cross with us as that reminder that we have a sacrifice to make in choosing to be a disciple. So I want to bring us back to our two key questions this morning to reflect on. Am I in the crowd or am I a disciple? And what does it cost me to be a disciple of Jesus? Am I in the crowd or am I a disciple? Am I simply listening, observing what Jesus is doing and saying, soaking up the atmosphere and the the inspiration, or am I choosing to follow him, to sacrifice my way for his way, to be his disciple? And perhaps take a moment this week to estimate the cost. What does it cost me? Because following Jesus means making changes in our lives. But it's worth it. Because the life he has for us is so much better than what we would live in our own strength. So we're starting this journey of discipleship over these next four weeks in church and it's going to flow on through in our small groups. And I pray that this will be a time when each of us really grows in our faith, where we really grow on our journey with God, that we might see battles that we've been struggling with for years being overcome in this season. But that comes at a cost. So maybe for us it's a cost of time, of committing to taking time out each day with God, or committing to attending church, or attending a small group to do a a discipleship course. Maybe it's it's a cost of serving in a new way, a cost of swallowing our nervousness or our anxiety and stepping forward to serve him. Perhaps it's a cost of lifestyle, choosing to stop hanging out in a certain place, perhaps even, or choosing to give up something that's been a comfort for us, but actually is drawing us away from looking to Jesus as our comfort. It might be a cost of our understanding, choosing to put our thoughts and our ideas of how we should live to one side, to trust in what God says. (coughs) But how much better able are we to pay that cost if we've started out beforehand thinking, what is the cost? Will I pay the cost to follow Jesus? And so as we close... I have an invitation for you. You get a present this week, people. In these bowls, there are some small crosses. And I'd like to invite you to take one away with you and just keep it somewhere as a reminder to you over these coming weeks of actually, what do I need to sacrifice? Each time you notice your cross, whether it's in your pocket or your purse or your handbag or your man bag or whatever, to say, have I sacrificed my way today to follow Jesus? What do I need to sacrifice to follow him? What is the cost to me? 
Um, band, are you able to nip up and... Thank you very much. So as we just close in worship, I'll just pass these around so you can take a cross to remind you of the cost that you pay to follow him.